0: It's the Basketball Hall of Fame's Legends Podcast. I'm Kyle Belanger. Joining me today is a two-time Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame in There are only a handful of people you can say that about. He's an eight-time NBA champion as a player two-time NBA champion as a coach, all with the Boston Celtics. He's the 1973 NBA Coach of the Year, and I could recite his resume for the next 12 minutes, but instead, I'd rather chat with the man himself. He is, of course, Tommy Heinsohn. Mr. Heinsohn, thanks so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Now, Tommy, it's, it's quite possible that you're the Hall of Famer with more service to a single team than any other in the world, regardless of sport, how much of that Celtics loyalty was on purpose, and how much of it just sort of developed over time?
1: Well, uh, when I retired as a player because of an injury, uh, I was really uh, made a move into the life insurance business, which is what I was doing uh, during the years I played with the Celtics, and uh, uh, all of a sudden, I read out back. Uh, asked me to do uh, the television games. Uh, the uh, They got their first television contract. So uh, he went out of his way to uh, ask me to do that. And I said, uh, and the reason was because I had a radio show and I had at least some uh, broadcast experience. And uh, when I did that, that set off a whole bunch of things. Uh, he ended up being my color man at one point and we got, uh, pretty friendly, which we were anyway, uh, about, um, uh, coaching the ball club at one point when he retired, he did talk to me about coaching and I, uh, I, I deferred to, uh, to him and I said, uh, I don't think uh, you ought to name anybody to coach this team except Bill Russell because he'll get the most out of himself. <laughs> Nobody's going to get out of him what he'll get out of himself and uh, proved to be true. But when Russell um, uh, retired as a coach, uh, I had been doing the broadcast, so I was already on the scene uh, watching what was happening with the ball club, but then I became a coach, and Oakley went. And after my coaching career, we uh, ended up broadcasting again. And uh, it all kind of just happened.
0: I love that. And none of it might have happened if not for your choosing Holy Cross in Worcester, Uh, Worcester Mass for college, allowing the Celtics to take you as a territorial selection in the draft. How How did you end up selecting Holy Cross after growing up in Jersey City?
1: Well... I want to go to a Jesuit school because my coach had gone to Fordham. And, um, uh, so I looked at Fordham. I looked at Georgetown and, uh, I went up to Holy Cross and I fell in love with Holy Cross. It was, uh, a smallish type school. Uh, it wasn't super big. Uh, they had a great basketball program at the time, uh, back a few years earlier, they had won the NCAA championship, but there were, um, uh, fellows playing up there that I played against in high school, or played, uh, um, uh, you know, in tournaments against, and uh, so I was eager to go up there and see what it was all about, and I loved the place.
0: It's remarkable how happenstantial all of this seems, because in your second Hall of Fame enshrinement speech, and there's only three other people in the world I can say that about. In your second Hall of Fame enshrinement speech, when you went in as a coach in 2015, you spoke about the way that Red Auerbeck turned you all, your, his, his players, um, into de facto coaches in the huddle. How quickly could you sense that your relationship with Red was one of the most important that you would ever have? Did it have to evolve or was it right away?
1: Well, uh, Red Albeck um, had a unique ability to um, get you to do something and um, and make you enjoy doing it. Uh, And how he did that is he uh, got you totally involved as a person. I mean, all you are, uh, your thoughts, your heart, uh, uh, your uh, physical ability uh, turned to uh, what he wanted you to do. Uh, So he... uh, He did it by giving you uh, the ability to have input into what was going on. Actually, from the very first day of practice, uh, he would be asking you about what you thought about what was going on. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, the natural uh, uh, conclusion as we went along with this process that he would start asking you about... uh, what should be done in the last two minutes of a game when you're down 10 points. <laughs> and uh, everybody would chip in and say, I think I can do this. And the unique part about it was that uh, he got you to commit to make something work in front of your teammates. And that was uh, really an interesting thing. So uh, that, that really made you become a thinking player. Uh, you didn't just execute what the coach was telling you. Uh, you were executing what you thought could be done, and uh, a real big difference.
0: Indeed. Now, as a player, alongside Russell, Jones, Nelson, Havlicek, Sanders, Kuzi, you all redefined what it meant to achieve excellence. But what is it about those teams that won the eight titles in the nine years? What do you wish people talked about more? Or what do you wish people knew that maybe, maybe doesn't get addressed at all?
1: Well, <clears throat> I, I think uh, the Celtics of that era were the true um, uh, basketball, in quotes, team. Um, I think uh, there were two selfless players that were really the leader uh, leaders of the team. One was Russell, and the other one was Kuzi. Russell, of course, uh, uh, revolutionized defense, and um, uh, it, people really didn't truly know uh, what the heck he was doing particularly the sports writers. And Cousy was the leader of the offense and he was a magical type player that introduced new things, uh, uh, fancy Dan type of things into the game that people just were astounded at. But um, uh, when things weren't going well, uh, these two leaders, we'd go into the locker room and uh, try to solve the problem ourselves. And instead of pointing fingers at each other by saying well you got to do this better you have to do that better uh, both of these fellows would stand up and they would say what do you guys think i can do better to turn this around and they would open themselves up to the criticism of their teammates uh, i dare say uh, any corporation that ever did that uh really uh, you see people buying together because uh uh, there's a certain amount of humility involved with uh, it, just going through that process. And I think that uh, is unique to our team. I don't believe I've ever heard anybody else talk about stuff like that.
0: Yeah, I, indeed. And now we've talked about your coaching career and your playing career, and we've touched a little bit on the broadcasting. So I want to ask a broadcasting question. All these years later, you know, you've know, you now been broadcasting for over 50 years. Um, and so... You have become an iconic broadcaster as well. When did you sense that you were more than just a guy on the radio, and instead you were someone who went out um, you know, in New England, you know, in the region that you live? You, you are more than just a broadcaster. You're an iconic voice. When did that happen, and is that strange?
1: Well, just longevity will do that. They, <laughs> because they stop and they say, how could he last? So long. Uh, Actually, uh, I kind of um, admired Johnny most. He was one of my best friends. And when I first started broadcasting, he uh, was my roommate on the road because all I did was road games. And um, uh, he he really kind of taught me broadcasting. Uh, He was what I call a white hat, black hat. Uh, type of um, a broadcaster. You were the good guys and the other guys were the bad guys and uh, I, I mean he just made it into a moral equivalency of war and um, I, I, I kind of enjoyed listening to him when I wasn't playing <laughs> and um, he got people involved so I, I, I uh, kind of went that route in my broadcast uh, I've been uh, totally accused of being a homer Uh, for many, many years, and um, I think that in itself is funny in in most people's eyes, uh, how he can do that, Uh, plus the fact that uh, I'm a little irreverent uh, with the officials. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've been castigated many times by the press by bringing up uh, what happens with the referees, Uh, but um, all of that put together, uh, it it really... um, kind of set me apart I guess and uh, just the longevity itself there's been nobody else so there he is
0: (laughs) well if I had the authority I would award you a Tommy Point for that response (laughs) (laughs) Tommy what does it mean finally and this is my last question um, what does it mean for you to be working with the Basketball Hall of Fame at this stage in your life and your incredible career
1: well uh, it certainly is an honor Uh, I never did any of the things I did uh, because I wanted to be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, It was done because I totally enjoyed doing what I was doing. And as a consequence, uh, um, I ended up in the Hall of Fame. One of the things I told uh, one of my kids when I was first uh, uh, received into the Hall was uh, that uh, uh, it happened. 20 years after I um, was a player, believe it or not. And um, uh, I said to them, look, what I found out playing basketball all those years of being in the public eye is that 40% of the people are going to hate you no matter what you do. And 40% of the people are going to love you no matter what you do. And 20% are really affected by what you truly do. So you're not in control of any of this. And what happens, happens.
0: (laughs) I love that. (laughs) I really love that. Well, he is a two-time Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame enshrinee as a player and a coach. He's an eight-time NBA champion as a player, a two-time NBA champion as a coach. and all of that service with the Boston Celtics, he is, of course, the inimitable Mr. Tommy Heinsohn. Tommy, thanks again for spending time with me today.
1: I had fun.